We love a good actor on this podcast and we have a seriously good one for you in our latest episode in the shape of Tim Roth. Tim's credits are, well, to be quite frank, too numerous to list, but he can currently be seen in the thoroughly gripping pulp crime drama Tin Star on Sky. Series one and two are already up and series three is on the way later this year. He's also worked with Quentin Tarantino on several occasions and had the honour of meeting Ennio Morricone too, of which plenty more shortly. I'll tell you what, you've got some absolutely cracking stories to look forward to, I can tell you. But first, some news about a new podcast I'm working on in partnership with BMW, where soundtracking allows me to explore my love of music and film, thoroughly enjoying putting together Play Next, a new weekly podcast bringing you the best of pioneering up-and-coming music artists. In each show, I play you a fantastic selection of tracks in their entirety that I can't stop listening to. We focus on a different, innovative, exciting artist each week and we also wanted to address and discuss some really fascinating and important topics surrounding the music industry. To do that, each week I'm joined by an industry figure to explore a range of topics covering the music of tomorrow. From the future of festivals to the process of making music or the most exciting emerging platforms. Guests so far have included Giles Peterson and none other than Hans Zimmer. Listen and subscribe now on all major streaming platforms with new episodes released every Wednesday. That's Play Next, a new podcast about new music in partnership with BMW. And so to the delightful Tim Roth. And we'll begin with a cue from Adrian Corker score to Tin Star, appropriately entitled Noir. I should say that given we spend quite a bit of time talking about Quentin Tarantino during the conversation, there is some seriously choice language coming up. You have been warned. I'm good. <laughs> yeah? How's, how's COVID treating you? Oh my God. I was in Mexico when it hit and then uh, filming and then I think end of February I got back here into California and I've been yeah. in my, pretty much in my house since. Yeah. With the odds, I've been like the odd trip out, but very, yeah. very rarely because my wife's parents are high risk. So okay. we, yeah. uh, we, me and my son are kind of nursemaids, one of my sons. So you just gotta, you just gotta listen to the, to you know what you're told, don't you? Really, in terms of just you know following the rules and keeping everybody safe, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, um, you know, you're you, you're in London, right? I am out in the countryside. I'm in Gloucestershire, actually. In so, Gloucestershire, yeah. but yeah. you're in, you're in the UK, so yeah. you've got Johnson. Oh yeah, right. Oh mate, and we've got Trump. Yeah, Planet of the Apes, yeah. right there, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you have to, yeah, you just have, you have to do, you have to f- listen to the scientists whenever you can find them and. It's all about being, you know, fully cautious and not yeah. 
Uh, no, I mean, I, I'm in lockdown until there's a vaccine coming. Yeah, I reckon same, to be honest. But this is lovely that I get the chance to, um, you know, to, to still talk to people about, about brilliant work that we are allowed to, what we can. And also what I think has been brilliant is that because there's almost a slightly slower path of things being available to us because there's not as much new, new stuff kind of being thrown at us all the time because productions obviously have had to halt. So yeah. it allows us to kind of take a breath and also just go, oh, I've got the time to watch that or I've got the time to read that or I've got the time to go and check that out. And I think that that's been a really, one of the positive things that I've kind of taken out of this whole experience, I think as well. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's, you know, yeah, total shutdown on the, on the work front. So yeah, you know, you focus on other stuff. Yeah, totally. You know, certainly, I mean, I find, I, I always, I'm, you know, it's the same with, I, I suppose, with um, the, this, the music that this film is made for. I'm, I'm always tend to go to old movies as comfort zone anyway. You know, I mean, by old movies now, I, I you know, things like Cares or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but really, yeah. Uh, I, but go, going back to the 30s and stuff like that, I tend to, I tend to do that, so. It's nice as well of that kind of being, you know, I've got two boys who are 12 and seven and having that opportunity to explore film with them as well and see the things yeah. that, that they're connected to. And a couple of the things that we watched was E.T. for the first time with my seven-year-old and then The Truman Show, which was a really interesting one, actually. I love The Truman Show. I'd forgotten how brilliant a film it was. Yeah, and he's, he's absolutely great in it. Jim Carrey. Oh, so great. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I've watched that with my guys. My guys are older. They're in their sort of mid and early 20s. My one's over here. And uh, yeah, we, yeah, we watched that together. It seems incredibly appropriate actually now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That film. My little seven-year-old was like, is there a part two to it? <laughs> no, right. <laughs> <laughs> On the outside. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> When are we getting 10 star series three then? Because I was absolutely hooked for the first two series. I loved it. I loved it. I'm really bad with this stuff. So I'll probably get slapped for it. But um, I think it's, it is this year at some point it's coming out over there. I don't know. I don't know particularly what, what date. I think November. Now we had some really sad news recently with the loss of Ennio Morricone, but you're fortunate enough to work with him on The Legend of 1900. Yeah. How did your involvement with that film come about? I was doing a film, I was doing a little, um, very strange film in Carolina. And um, I, it was one of two films that I shot there, almost back to back, a little break in the middle. And I think what they did first was send me the book, the novella which is astounding, it's such, a, it's such a beautiful read and heartbreaking and wonderful read. And then they came to, uh, Giuseppe Tonatori came uh, to meet me in Carolina. They flew over, him and his first AD, who kind of is his producer or whatever, mm. came over. I don't know if I'd read a script at that point or they came and gave me the script to, uh, to read. But I was already hooked in a sense um, by uh, the idea of working with Tonatori, you know, because of uh, Sinat Paradiso. And, and, and also uh, the impossibility of me playing that character, I thought was, was quite uh, the, the challenge. And then I read it and found it even more impossible. And as we shot, I, I mean, I was listening to it. I, I drove around before we sat down, I, I drove around my neighborhood and was listening to the music and I was walking around in the kitchen. 
listening to it again as well uh, this morning and thinking I was the wrong guy for this. It was really, it's an, an old 1930 kind of nine-ish Robert Montgomery movie with a, you know, it's an old, it's, it requires that kind of dedication to the, to the romantic and that kind of in, in, like embrace, embracing of, of, of that, of the mood and the love and the romance of it all and, the, and, the, and, the, and that kind of particular comedy. It's of that era and I was probably the wrong guy. <laughs> because, you know, I, oh, that's a bit corny or that's a bit this, that's a bit that. And, and uh, instead of just all wholeheartedly diving in and, and loving it, because when I listen to the music now, I haven't seen the film since it was made. I never do, do that, um, mm. watch them. But now that I listen to it, it's magnificent. It's absolutely astounding piece of work. Uh, uh, from the from the composer and it makes me think of all the images and the work that we put in and all of that I hope I did a good job, but I probably um, was, it was a brave bit of casting on, on Giuseppe's part, I think. Anyway, that's how it came to me. They came to me and we talked and then they left it with me and I read it and went, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. But that, that, is, uh, that is sometimes what happens, you know. Well, I love that idea that of that, the kind of almost memory bank way that music can, like you just talked about, do you know what I mean? And I think that, you know, I was just telling you about watching E.T. with my seven-year-old and that... was Williams, right? John yeah. Williams is kind of like, you know, he's like waking up singing it in the morning sort of thing. It's it's in there. It's kind of... Yeah. It's a sign of kind of the emotional connection he's made with, I think, the whole thing, but the music in there. What part does music play for you in terms of when you're finding a role, when you're finding a character and you're kind of, you know, thinking about it, does music help you in any way when you're trying to, I don't know, form your opinion of those characters? No, it's no, I know I uh, I know actors who do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know actors who um, pick uh, particular kinds of music for a particular kind of job, and they go with that. And, but no, it's that's never never. Way. With this, 
uh, I think, what was I sent? It's actually the process of doing this one was completely unusual because of uh, what Ennio was doing. So I was in Los Angeles and I was back. Yeah, that's right. And they, um, they sent me, uh, they sent this guy, Ian Townsend, over to be with me. I had to learn to play the piano or to look like I could play the piano. Yeah. That was <laughs> and so we had... 21 pieces that we had to play that I had to play or seem like I could play. Yeah. Um, and we used every trick under the, in the book, you know, um, his arms were coming through mine, mine were behind my back. I mean, in the film, it's incredible. I mean, that's a green screen here. His, his arms would be no. green screen. Oh yeah. We did absolutely everything. Some of the things I had to, had to do, then it would cut to his hands and back to me and, you know, the old, really old school stuff really old-fashioned stuff. It was great. He came to Los Angeles, I think, about six months before, and I worked with him. He, he had two uh, keyboards set up. And we would work opposite each other, and he would show me how his wonderful pianist. He'd worked with Gary Oldman um, uh, when Gary was playing uh, Beethoven, but Gary could actually play, I think, some. Uh, I, can, I still can't, uh, can't even play chopsticks. Thing. So, that's <laughs> true. Um, so... <laughs> We worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, then up sticks and went to uh, Rome, moved there, did exactly the same thing, two rooms next to each other, worked every day, you know, uh, and at that point, and meanwhile, Ennio had been uh, composing, still working on the, on the, the musical score. Then we started having meetings about the character and so on. Let me know if to stop talking if you... No, it's <laughs> amazing. This is, you're like the dream. This is brilliant. Okay. So, <laughs> so, then, uh, so then at some point fairly early on, uh, Giuseppe, he, he said, okay, we're going to go and meet um, Ennio. Like, <gasps> and I was a fan. See, that's the other thing, I suppose, uh, from the, the Sergio Leone movies, you know, right through The Thing, Stuff like that. I loved the scores. I loved what he did. He was a hero. And, and so, okay, here we go. So we went to his 
apartment in Rome, which has a piano or had a piano in every room and uh, with a lot of pianos. Uh, that's how I remember it. Anyway, and it was the evening and we arrived and we had a glass of wine because you're in Rome and would be rude not to. And uh, there he was. I seem to remember him being shorter than me, which is pretty hard to get. And uh, Ian was with me, Ian, my, my fingers, my, my, uh, my piano brain. You should talk to him, that'd be great. Hi, and, Fingers, nice to meet you. <laughs> uh, he's absolutely extraordinary. We became very close throughout the whole thing. And he was, um, so anyway, we arrived and he was sweating. He was so nervous, Ian was. And Ennio said, oh, nice to meet you. It was very, all very formal. Came in and said, okay, play the love theme to Ian. And Ian's like, shit. And he had to sit down and play it. And he was a sweater too. Uh, and, and he sat down and he played it in front of Ennio, who was his hero. And because he was a cinema buff and a crazy, you know, he sat and he played it. And then there was this pause. And anyway, Ennio went, okay. And then we carried on talking. And was just, <laughs> Ian was just melted, just melted into the floor. And uh, we, that was his approval that the thing was for him wow. was that he did not want anyone messing with his music at mm. all he did not want it to be badly represented and so he felt that ian would be able to preserve and, and protect his his score yeah so that that was that we went about our business and we we um uh you know rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed i worked separately with giuseppe on the character and whatnot yeah actory bit and then I, I remember we were doing we were we had then we okay oh sorry it's this long convoluted story but we went to we started filming in odessa in ukraine we did all of the all of the scenes that were um on the boat on the exterior, on the top of the boat, on the, on the top deck. And they had a, 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 a ship that had been, I don't know what you call it. It didn't have an engine in it, but it was, it was the hulk of, of this husk, I suppose, of this ship. Yeah. And, and a tug pulling us around uh, on the Red Sea. It's the Red Sea? I guess it's the Red Sea. 
and we did all the, the walking on deck, all of, all of the departure stuff, or, or, you know, building up to the departure stuff, um, all of that on, in Odessa for seven weeks. And still, same thing, piano in one, one room and him, and piano, two keyboards, and still working and working and working and working. Because I don't think there was any piano involved in that stuff. And then we did all the bowels of the ship stuff and, all, and his, his father stuff and the meeting of, of, and all the scenes with Pruitt down there, uh, who played uh, the, the trumpet player. And, um, and so we shot that, so we still had seven weeks. And then we, and we came back to Rome, where my family was staying for seven weeks without me. It was great. And having a lovely time. And so, and then it began. And we went to film at Chinichita, the famous at Fellini's, on Fellini's stage at the studio, stage five, I think it is, uh, was, I should say. And um, we were doing, I remember we were doing a big ballroom scene with all the tables and the upper class patrons on, the, on that deck, you know, things like all that move, camera move, coming down from the chandelier onto the band and all of that, playing some playing standard stuff and then my character freaks out and goes on a jazz riff. It was a really difficult stuff to do, and that was how we started, I think. And and everyone was was terrified, and but we got it, we got it, we finally got it. And Ian was thrilled, and we all sort of were relieved. And Ennio was there, and he was standing at the back of the set, just to to behind me, to my to my right. And I looked at him, and and he was standing there looking at me, and he said for me to come over and I went over to see him. I know, right? <laughs> I'm sweating been. for you thinking about <laughs> it. <you know? laughs> I know. And then and he was crying. <gasps> he was crying. And then he grabbed me and hugged me and said, Maestro. <gasps> and, and I lost my shit. And, and then we were fine. <laughs> and then we were okay. Oh my but God. But it was a long journey. 
And Maestro is what he's known as. He's known as Maestro. Oh, Tim, that's an amazing story. <laughs> that's remarkable. Nice. You know, and then we all had sandwiches, you know, because you have to have some <laughs> craft services everybody needs yeah. them <laughs> it was um i was lucky enough actually to speak to quentin about morricone about the hateful eight and about how you know he was obviously you know a massive hero of his and a massive inspiration to him and how he went to him with a script and asked him if he would write this score and he sort of said um oh here i've got some bits lying around that you can have and quentin told me that he had to say thank you but I wanted you to write something new based on this script. And he kind of went, oh, no, take these bits and see if you can do something with it. And then he was like, literally fell off his perch when, however long later, you know, Morricone gets in touch after reading the script and is like, yeah, okay. Got something for you. That's amazing, isn't it? he did and I can't remember and it may still be with the film uh, on Hateful Eight Quentin loved the the, uh, the music from The Thing and so I think he used that as a, I don't know if it's as, as a temporary or used a piece of that and I'm, I'm not sure if that actually eventually made it, made it into the film anyway it may have or something similar to that Ennio gave him but yeah I remember I remember that story that, um, and it was just here it is. piece of score in that film is just extraordinary yeah yeah it's utterly and unexpected yeah because it, it feels like a different music for a different genre of film that it kind of messes with you but it's so clever which is what quentin's doing at, at, uh, you know within that within that western sort of genre anyway you know he's, he's, he's playing with playing with your with cin- cinematic kind of comfort zones 
I mean, talking about film and music, I think Quentin is someone who redefined the use of music within film, you know, back with Reservoir Dogs in terms of, he really kind of set a new standard, I think, in terms of how creative you can be with with music and in the way that it's inbred within the the narrative but it becomes part and parcel the whole story the color the emotion all that kind of thing as well yeah when you were doing reservoir dogs were you aware of the kind of musical element to it in terms of how how inbred the music was going to be with that kind of final look of the film and final feel of the film in the, only in a couple of aspects because because I was involved in a scene where it, it was a character within the scene, which was when Mike's uh, torturing the, the cop. is involved because of the dance and so on and I remember actually I, I think that uh, Mike wasn't too keen on doing the dance you know and uh, it's like well you can't tell one of, one of those eh, you couldn't tell exactly good acting um, but I remember that being an element um, and then you did get the feeling that a score would be a character within the film and uh, in, in a real sense yeah you know not just layer a layer and that it would be uh Quentin thinks very carefully and analyzes very microscopically, if you like, his work when he when he's um, when he's on set before, during, and after the process. So you did get a feeling that music was was uh, was present, even though it you know when we were walking down, there had to be some walking you know, at the beginning. Yeah. Did he have music playing when you were doing that? No. No. But he was. You know that he was thinking. Uh, I don't know what he would have shot at, 40 frames a second or whatever. So, so there's something was going through his mind.
clean in his head, isn't he? It's very clean in his head, and also, you know, we're discussing music. You know, um, we're discussing uh, Madonna's music in the in the cafe before we all get up and do what we do. Yeah. So it was always it was always there. Yeah. What the fuck was I talking about? So True Blue was about a guy, uh, such a girl that meets a nice guy, but like a virgin was a metaphor for big dicks. Okay. Let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coos who's a regular fuck machine. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. So one day she meets this John Holmes motherfucker and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. All right, now she's getting this serious dick action. And she's feeling something she didn't feel since forever. Pain, pain. Chew, Toby, chew. It hurts. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt her. You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding a fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. And then, I mean, and then Pulp Fiction as well, because he took it even a kind of stage further in the way that, you know, the, the, the music was even more part of the narrative, I think, as well. And I love as well how it kind of had a life of its own after the film as well, and particularly with you and Amanda Plummer's kind of characters in that whole yeah. particular track with the use of the, you know, the use of the clip. I'm going to kill every motherfucking one of you, you know, that whole sort of thing. It's like... Wait, wait, I've got platinum disc. Have you? Um, it, well done. Yeah, when, when you just, when you just... <laughs> just before they stopped giving them. Um, and it's in my office and it's the picture with Uma on the, on the you know, poster and then it's the actual disc itself. And it's the... Uh, and because anyone who was in the soundtrack uh, got one, so we all got one. I love you, I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! <laughs> Character that I think the audience with Quentin is looking forward to seeing or hearing. Yeah, he, he's known for it now, but he was, you know, that it's on that 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 it's developed, but it's gone unchanged. It's, yeah. it's always present in this film too. I was watching a lovely interview with you actually, and it was really it was really interesting to hear you say that you know he hasn't changed in the way that he directs really. From you know he's still this amazing kind of 
geek and film fan that's a director in the way that he works. You know, he knows exactly what he wants and, and what he needs to get from his, you know, he's, he's written the, I think you said something like he's written the improvisations almost. Well, that's true. You do feel that. And I felt it with the, with the screenplay in Reservoir Dogs. And, and although we, me and him talked and talked and talked beforehand, as we got to know each other before we started filming. But he, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally one of those, it's very rare. It's one of those writers who you get the script and all of that stuff's done for you. Mm. It's very rare that you're on set and you do something and you go, and it does happen though, where he goes, oh, do that. I want you to do that, whatever that is. Make that noise. Fantastic. And you go, oh, okay. But it's all kind of, he, he's written the rhythm and the, and the, and the um, absurdity and the weakness and the strength. It's all taken care of. And, and quite often uh, you'd hear him from the back of the set during a take going, say the lines, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you got a point. You know, uh, <laughs> we all got told that. Yeah. How much of though, because I remember when I watched Hateful Eight in the cinema and when you came on screen for the first time, it was like, oh, yes. And because he's, Oswaldo was such a kind of, he's such a big character, you know, in terms of his kind of theatrics and his presence and the voice and all that kind of thing. How much of that was, was created by Quentin and how much did you work on that together in terms of that specific character? He writes, he, he, he likes to fuck with me. He knows. <laughs> Is that you. a good thing? Um, yes. <laughs> he, he knows how much I have a real issue with the upper classes. And so he will write that kind of dialogue to me and just watch me suffer through. I mean, as well, there was two characters, you know, and, and the idea was to let the one guy slip out and then bring him back and, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, but literally, they like said, and he would say, it, said, I love watching him suffer. So, you know, and he would like, he makes him laugh. Quite often with him, and I don't know actually, because the original, the first, yeah, we've, we've done different, different kind of versions of that kind of upper class thing. We did it, it was cut from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it was, the, the guy that I played was a butler, yeah. an English butler to another character. It's just a scene. It's just that we shot it in a day. It was such fun. But again, that kind of, that kind of yeah. pompous <laughs> bullshit, you know. Uh, he, he, he gets yeah, kicked out of uh, yeah. Playing with people. What about when, you know, when you were directing um, Warzone and deciding and thinking about the music around that and, and, and choosing Simon Boswell to, to do your score for that. I'd really love to kind of talk about coming to that decision and what you, the conversations that you had and, and what you hoped to get from the, the kind of the, the music for that film as a director. Well, initially I had, I think when we were making it, I mean, okay, the, the, the idea, um, you know, visually and cinematically, the idea was to take a, a Ken Loach subject and shoot it as a David Lean movie in, in, in some ways. So give it that, give it that landscape. It's where we shot anamorphic. Treat it with the, with the same kind of uh, lavishness as, as a, a, a Lean movie. I know it's, it's, it's an odd thing. It's not, that's not what it is, but that was the idea behind it. But with a, a subject that Ken would, for example, take on. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I, but I hadn't thought about um, uh, any kind of soundtrack for it and I wasn't necessarily going to go down that road and but as we were filming and I was I was I suppose you know 
while we were shooting certain sequences, certain scenes, I was starting to think about, well, actually, I could see this with a soundtrack. It would surprise people that this subject yeah. would have a soundtrack. Now they put soundtracks all over everything. As it, it seems like there's a guy in a hotel room, a motel room with a big bag of you know, fries and a, and a Casio keyboard <laughs> just doing all of the music for everything. Just churning out. <laughs> what, you want to make them cry? Here, have this one. Yeah, yeah got that one. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I've, got, I've got 25 crying ones if you want. So, uh, so, I, but I, so I didn't do any kind of temp track. I didn't do any, any of that stuff. But I, it, was starting to, it was starting to occur to me that there, this actually might be a film. As, and as we saw what we'd been shooting as well, as we were looking at rushes and so on, um, it started to feel like it, it had that, that possibility. So we started, at, we, you know, as we were doing the editing process and we would, I would do screenings, we would edit on computer and have a transfer to film so I could uh, produce screenings at that time, which would drive everyone crazy, but it's what I knew. And I started to look, at, look around for a composer and my uh, Dixie Linda was my producer and all those guys were like, got it. So they came up with a few for me to see, a few films for me to see with some... Uh, interesting soundtracks, interesting composers. And Simon's was uh, the one, I can't remember what film it was that he had done that got me, his music got me. Anyway, I met with him and I went to his, he got, I think he got a kind of, it's a long time ago, but I think that we'd sent him some stuff to look at. And I went to his house and he had in, in the lovely house, I remember, and down in this basement, he had a studio, that's a studio where he sort of worked his magic. And, uh, and he played me at what had first occurred to him when he was watching. There was no temp track. There was no, none of that bullshit that um, directors do yeah. that influences you. None of that. So he, he had watched what he, what we had sent him. Maybe we sent him a rough cut and put this, Thing together and I sat there and I watched it and that's what you've got.
And but weirdly, weirdly, um, I said, "This is great." I said, and we 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 talked. We said, "What about if we bring a bit here? What about if we do this? What about same way as you talk with actors? You know, what about if? What about if? How about take that down, put that in, get that rid of that, all that stuff." So we did that, went through that process, and and I said, "But and now, you know, go feel free, do what do what you want to do, with, and I'll come back." So I'll go back to the editor to that thing. I came back, and he'd done a completely different thing. He'd gone down a, 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 a jazz rabbit hole or something. He'd gone down into, and, it, and I was like, where is it? What happened? And he just said, well, you told me. I mean, you, I just went wherever. I said, great. Could we have the other guy back? You know, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and he, was, he was very sweet about yeah. it. Yeah. Sure, got that. But his instincts, his initial instincts were, were bang on, I think was very, very beautiful. And then it was a question of, okay, then how do we do this? And we got to do it at the church at George Martin studio where, you know, yeah. and 40 piece orchestra and Simon got to do his thing and, and we did it. They're amazing experiences. I've been lucky enough to be in a couple of them and just the physicality of that you feel from all those musicians yes. in a room playing and how they feed off each other's energy. And then you, it's, it's like a kind of, that kind of idea of a wall of sound that just hits you, but emotionally, it's so powerful. I remember we were, you know, getting, we were waiting for, and they were waiting <laughs> for them to come musicians. And you know, they come in and they look at it for the first time. All, they're all session guys and, you know, <laughs> they sit down and get the stuff out and they're all having a chat. And then there's the, the guy, the pianist is up there and then there's the conductor, whoever's doing it and they're all, and, and, and then suddenly start playing it. And they have never practiced it and it just was the most gorgeous experience. And the ceiling in that place could lower depending on what acoustics you wanted. But I remember I had, um, a part for flugelhorns in it. Right. And the two guys who, I think they'd been on the piss the night before and they hadn't quite recovered from, from the night before. And so they could never get their, they couldn't get their act together. They couldn't get it right. And there was a, I remember at the time I was in the, the studio thing at the back and there were, with all the guys doing the thing, working their magic. And they were saying, we can move that out. We can just, we'll pick it up later. I said, oh no. No, 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 no. They're going to play it. We're going to stick around until they get it right. And it was torture that you could give, you know. They were probably so hungover, these poor guys. A little bit of sick in their flugelhorn, just kind of Yeah, like... flugelhorn. Oh. Straight down the pub. Anyway, but it was an extraordinary experience. I loved it. I loved the process of it. And I'm still proud of the music. And I think Simon did stand-up, stand-up job. Yeah.
um, listen, we're about to run out of time, and but I could spend hours talking to you uh, about your you just so, so great telling stories, Tim. Um, but one thing I wanted to talk about just quickly before we leave as well, if that's all right, was 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 Gridlocked because I love that film. Yeah, I remember it was properly when I was just starting to get into film in a slightly different way from kind of going to the cinema with my mum and dad or whatever. It was kind of I was just really I was getting more interested in in the nuances of film and, and stuff and how that that went together. Um, and also the score on that as well. Stuart Copeland from the Police doing the score on that as well. But yeah. But what's your memories of of Gridlocked and and making that film a two pack? Well, I. I was, it's funny because I was just talking to Vondi, who directed it um, the other day, and um, it's it's a complicated one. It's a, it's actually a, a, quite a sort of uh, it's, it's, it goes in and out the story of how we got there. But yeah. originally uh, there was another actor that was going to play um, two parts part and uh, pulled out, and so we were left without. Uh, without the sparring partner, because obviously three-hander. So we were looking for um, uh, an actor, and, and Vondi came up with the idea of Tupac. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, 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 no. I need an actor. I wasn't actually being whitened from London and completely useless. I wasn't too clear on who he was, but I knew he was a very, very, very famous rapper. Yeah. Not only. That I, I can't, that, that I knew about, but also because there were billboards. He was double platinum at the time, and he was, you know, it's like, I, no, I, I, I need to work with an actor. I'm sorry, I can't. I don't need a pop star. I need, you know, that kind of yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was Tim. Please shut up. Being, I was being told that by a lot of people. I'm like, no, no. So I, I was, I think it was the Oscars that year, and I was nominated for something. And Rob Roy. Yeah, and. Um, Afterwards, I was going to one of the silly shindigs that you do. It's kind of fun, actually. And Quincy Jones came up to me out of the blue. I went, Tim. I went, hello. And uh, he said, give him a chance. Give him a chance, Tim. Just give him a chance. And I'm like, got it. Right? Stop being a wanker, basically. <laughs> so, so me and Bundy, I used to go to this lovely little restaurant with my missus, and we... we they cleared it out of the, the sort of back garden area. And me and Vonnie were sitting there and it was completely empty, deserted, nice of that. And then these guys came in, security guys, I guess, came in, did the sweep and, and left. Oh my God. And then um, some women came in, very glam, and went and sat at another table in the corner. And then Puck came in, comes in, right? He comes in and he sits down opposite me at the table and he says his hellos. <laughs> and he tells me the insides, the outsides, the backwards, forwards, upside downs of the character. He has it so down. And then, of course, he was an actor before he was a rapper. He was at the Baltimore school. He was, he was at the fame school, of all things. You know, he, that was his thing. And he, you know, uh, he'd just never given, been given that kind of role to play around in. Mm. And he knew it and he was ready for it and he wanted it. And I, I was just gobsmacked by him. And Vondi was saying to me the other day, he said, then you guys, you know, you on the beer, him on the, him on the whatever it was. Chris and it, you were off in, off in a, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> off, off in a corner going, okay, what, do we, what about if we do this? What about if? What about if? What about it? 
and then we shot it. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, working with him, improvising with him. He was terrified of rats when we were in the back alley, so you hear him scream. Um, he, was, uh, he was fun, clever. The, the only thing that was difficult for him was sometimes that earlier on he would come and he was exhausted. And I was like, well, what's going on? And he said, well, I got to direct this video, be in this video, I'm at the studio where I leave, all of this stuff. And I'm like, no, you've got to stop. Absolute stop. You're ours for five weeks, six weeks. Yeah. That's all we've got. And he did. He put the brakes on everything else and we just had a lovely time. And I mean, there's lots of stories I could tell about it. But, but then uh, we wrapped it. We kept in touch. He went and did his thing. We talked about a lot of stuff. Well, as actors do on set, about, hey, you know, the gun thing and the, that culture and, and the gang, East Coast, West Coast, and all of that stuff did come up, and I met various people and all of those things. But, you know, a lot of it was us sitting, sitting on the back of a, of a props truck waiting for them to be ready to shoot and shoot and shit. Yeah. And then he was coming back to do um, ADR, to do looping, you know, after revoice and some stuff. We were supposed to see him the day the day after he got shot. And he survived the first time he got shot up in New York. And we all thought he's going to make it. And he did make it, but he didn't make the surgery. Yeah. Oh. But he, I, I enjoyed the experience of working with him very, very much. You know, whatever the film may be, uh, and it's a good little film, I think. Yeah. Um, the experience of it is more important in a sense to me than the than it's one of those things because of what happened. Yeah. Well, you gave you give me a wonderful experience as a film fan. So, yeah, thank you. Um, Tim, I could speak to you for hours, but I, I know my, my time is up. And um, I'm looking forward to, to the final series of Tin Star of having to say goodbye to Jim Jack. Um, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, stay safe. And thank you so much for your time. Okay. And you, you take care. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Got me up against the fix, back against the wall. Get to act like a fool. Say no justice for the dog. Have to take it out on all y'all. Better read the papers on my homies going crazy, baby. Only got the papers. Got my mind to come and see. Hurry, see, I ain't bummy. It's a gangster party. So bad boy getting bummy. Snoop Dogg while they fantasize. When we ride, it's a must have a seven. I'm so smooth about my paper, check it, this size done. I'm serving mini on the platter, Snoop Dogg, Coleon, Coleon. Now do you know what that mean? The Teflon Don took the hip-hop game super supreme. It's like what happened can happen, but will it stop? That won't happen. I'm feeling good about the mission for Jack and the pop. Can you feel me? Why these fools trying to kill me? It's so hard to stay focused on my eyes and pride. But if I don't, then dog won't survive. We ballin' in my opinion, eternal was wild wheel spinning. One simple minute is represented for five minutes. Two of the lives, one of dead or alive. We riders, Venice because we acquired and watch the G's ride. Two of America's most straight out the West Coast. Bell down food. Gridlocked, that Wanted, Dead or Alive by Tupac and Snoop Dogg, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Tim Roth. My huge thanks to Tim for taking the time to talk to me in lockdown from his home in California. What absolutely brilliant company he is. Tin Star Series 1 and 2 are available to watch on Sky and Now TV with Series 3 coming in the autumn. 
and the other work we discussed is available on the usual platforms. We'll put up a Spotify playlist for the show via edithbowman.com where you can also subscribe to the podcast and catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my chat with Quentin Tarantino. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and you can see an extract from this interview on our YouTube channel where I put together a regular show as a companion to this podcast. Next up, someone I've been trying to get on this show for a very long time. Here to talk about Tenet, The Mandalorian, Black Panther and so much more is the incredible Ludwig Gornsson. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 